The um, ancient Greek historian Herodotus records for us an ancient Ninevite custom whereby women would sit outside the temple of the fertility goddess Ishtar to be taken by the first male who came along and liked what they saw. Likewise, historical records from Mesopotamia have given us many instances of women being auctioned or sold into marriage. An ancient Sumerian word denoting what they understood to be marital love actually meant literally something closer to marking out land, a business arrangement, nothing more. But the Hebrew word used at the end of this chapter for Isaac's love for Rebekah is different. It's countercultural for its time. It's closer to love as we would understand it. And so beside this very sweet chapter that struggled into the midst of Abraham's often slightly more violent story is an arranged marriage, yes, but it's also a vital part of the unfolding of God's covenant with Israel and through them with all of humanity, that's you and me, that shows us something about God's covenant with all of us. And so there are three main players in this story, aren't there? Isaac isn't one of them, at least not until the end. For most of the chapter, he's just the dewy-eyed bridegroom-to-be, waiting passively in a field somewhere for his bride to magically roll up. But Abraham gives the mission. His praying servant completes it. And finally, the story focuses on the reactions of Rebecca and her family. And so in verse 1, we see Abraham, now very old, which considering how old he was when Isaac was born, which the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 25, tells us was now 40 years ago, is well over 100. So he knows that his time is soon up. He needs to set his house in order, which includes getting his son Isaac suitably married. And so verses 1 to 9 show us his thought process here. He makes his decisions with a lot of practical wisdom, but most importantly, he has his covenant relationship with God in mind. And so he gets his servants to make an oath by putting his hand under his thigh. Sounds a bit weird and sweaty, but it was the standard way of doing it in those days. And there are three parts to the mission he's giving him. Firstly, don't let a Canaanite marry my son. Second, get a wife from him, for him, from my people, but bring her to him. Don't take him back there. As we're going to see, there are both spiritual reasons for this and very sound historical reasons as well. But thirdly, there's a qualification. Despite his confidence in verse 7 that God will send an angel before his servant, he says this, If the woman you find won't come with you, you're released from this oath. Abraham is sure that this is God's will, but in case he's missed God, there's a but if not to work out another plan. But the way that Abraham discerns whether this is God's will, the right way for the continued fulfillment of God's covenant promise, isn't to sit and agonize about it forever, but to be proactive and see if God blesses it 
with success. And so, why not a Canaanite bride? Why not potentially marry into the local aristocracy and build a good alliance? Abraham's social standing might have made that a good match for both parties. But later, in Exodus 34, God names the tribes that he will drive out before Israel, and these include the Canaanites. Exodus goes on to say this, Take care not to make covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, or it will become a snare for you. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars. You shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to their gods, they will invite you. And so God's warning there is precisely why Abraham doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite. They could lead his son away from God. Isaac will live in Canaan, but not be of it, just as we are in the world, but not of it. Samson would make this mistake, so would Solomon, and from then to the exile, Israel would wrestle with it. Later, in Genesis 27, Isaac has to watch his son Esau doing precisely this, much to his heartache. And so perhaps we can take a challenge from this for us about how we orient our decisions and priorities and choices in regard to our walk with God. And so when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he tells him that his people will go down into Egypt and then return because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, these tribes are doing great evil. God is giving them time to turn back, sort themselves out, as he does to all people. But it's not forever. And so Isaac's bride must come from the covenant people, from Abraham's family. But she must come to Isaac. He can't go back to her. The most important reason for this is that it would have been a reversal of Abraham's journey of faith. Verse 7 makes clear the need to stay in the land of promise. But there's also some history here. Abraham's life is roughly dated to be around 2000 BC. And during this time frame, Ur, his home city, which up to that point has been the world's first great political superpower, the first great human civilization, has been gradually nibbled away at by usurpers. And by 1940 BC, it will have fallen to a people called the Elamites. So depending on when precisely Abraham's doing all this, Ur has either fallen or will fall soon. By calling him when he did, God has delivered him not only into his own destiny, but out of his homeland's overthrow. Taking Isaac home would be taking him back to a defeated land. And so there are spiritual and very practical reasons too for Abraham's decision-making. 
He's making covenant choices based on his conviction that God, who has kept one promise to provide a son, will carry on keeping his word. And we trust too, don't we? In God's promise to be with us through all of life's ups and downs. In the life everlasting to come. In the return of Christ. And so, what might be making it hard right now for you or I to trust in God's faithfulness? How might you or I be tempted to compromise with the future God has in store for us when he's promised us his eternal love, his eternal presence in the glory of Christ, new creation to come? And so, having been entrusted with his mission, the servant sets out. Way back in Genesis 15, when Isaac is just a future promise, a seemingly incredible hope, Abraham asks how this is going to be when he is childless and Eleazar of Damascus is his heir. This man is identified by a very strong Jewish Midrash tradition as the servant who goes to find Rebekah. The senior steward who, we are told in verse 2, is in charge of everything that Abraham has. And so it's worth noting, isn't it, the wonderful humility with which this man, who, if this tradition is right, might have been in Isaac's place, serves his interests with a total lack of rancor or jealousy. And so Abraham's made decisions in the light of his walk with God, and in verse 14, the servant takes that further and trusts God with very specific details of his need, very specific details of his desire to fulfill his mission to accomplish God's purpose. In verse 11, when he's got to this place where he's going to find Rebekah, not only does he stop, but he makes the camels kneel down too. He's confident that this is it. He's not moving. Either that or they're very pious camels, but I doubt that. Rebekah enters right on cue, and so the servant makes contact, bides his time, watching her serve him. What's he looking for? Attitude? Family resemblance? Just making sure that just because he prayed and this girl pops up, that doesn't mean it's just coincidence and she's not a relative at all. This is a land where water's precious. It wouldn't have been wrong for her necessarily to keep what she'd drawn for her family. But instead she serves him and the Bible's very matter-of-fact about this, but feeding a fleet of camels would not have been an easy task. And so now it's time to really make his move. He needs to know whose daughter she is, and when in verse 24 she tells him, he struck gold. This is exactly what he's looking for. And so it's mission accomplished. He's fulfilling his ministry. God's purposes are going forward. He's fulfilled Abraham's trust. And so, in verses 26 and 27, he models something else for us. 
He worships in thankfulness. And so he's somebody who's not just being given a job to do and doing it, but praying it through for himself in humility and service, sanctifying his work and ministry, discerning when it's right to speak and act and when to wait, being ready to work and serve and let God move through it, and being thankful that God has moved through all of this to bring him what he is seeking. First John tells us this. This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So, do we trust God to guide us? Through his revealed word? Through our walk with him? Through the counsel of others? Do we pray with this sort of confidence and very specific trust? And when we work for the Lord in whatever capacity we do, when we share the good news of the gospel, whether it's holiday club just around the corner, whatever it is, how we show and tell Christ to people beyond the church, we're servants of a bridegroom too, aren't we? Jesus, serving and building his bride, the church. And we've known, haven't we, the joy of seeing people know the Lord through our endeavours, the joy of God helping us through prayer, the joy of being in his service, of our communion with him. Situations have flaws. The people God gives us have flaws. And we have flaws too that frustrate us. But sometimes we too just need to worship in thankfulness. And so Rebecca takes the servant to meet the family, receive shelter, and Laban comes out to meet this stranger Being the Laban that we know and love in verse 30, he doesn't fail to take notice of the gold on display. And many commentators have wondered whether he would have been quite so helpful had the servant been a less well-known, more obscure man. In some of the verses that we've cut for time, the servant retells his story, and then in verse 50, there's a recognition that this thing is from the Lord. But is that all that they're thinking. Is Laban perhaps thinking, we don't know Isaac, but old Uncle Abe's well off, nice dowry, and for a pensioner who's nifty with a sword if they need protecting? A lot of writers on this passage doubt Laban's motives more than a little, especially given his later dealings with Jacob. And so the next day, the servant is all set to uh, return home, but they press him to stay for a bit. The Hebrew word for days here is ambiguous. It can mean a much longer time frame. And so again, why? No doubt they don't want to lose Rebecca so quickly, especially her mum. But is Laban trying to pull the same trick he'd later pull with Jacob? But the initiative here, this time, lies with Rebecca, and she's happy to go. Later in Genesis, we'll learn that Rebecca can be just as much of a schemer as anybody, but she's also 
hugely sensitive to God's will. When Esau and Jacob are struggling in her womb and God reveals to her that Jacob, not Esau the firstborn, will be the chosen one, she runs with it, even if the way that she does it is far from ideal or honest. And so just as centuries later, Mary would say yes to being the mother of Jesus, Rebecca picks up this ball and runs with it. And so for all their flaws, their weaknesses, their mixed motives, these people are still orienting themselves towards God's imperative and mission. God is using them all in this situation, just as he uses us, despite our flaws, our divided hearts. And so, if any of us here this morning don't know Jesus as saviour, The Bible says that he's knocking at the door of our hearts. Will we listen and not delay, but follow? And if we know him, if he's our master, where might he be calling us? And so after this eventual meeting between Isaac and Rebecca, the birthing of God's holy nation, Israel, continues to unfold. Abraham has made decisions in the light of God's covenant. His servant has trusted God with specific needs and thankful stewardship. And Rebecca and her family might struggle with their hearts, but it's the imperative to respond to God that wins. All of them make these choices conscious that God is with them. And Jesus makes us a promise too, doesn't he? That when we follow him, however hard it sometimes is, his yoke is easy, his burden is light because he's the truth and because we walk in his strength and his victory. And through everything that transpires here in this chapter comes Israel, the lineage of Jesus, and then the church, you and I. God's spiritual nation, called by the perfect bridegroom, Jesus, who we love and serve. As 1 Peter tells us, we too are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. And Isaac loves Rebecca. It's a Disney ending, kind of, you can imagine the choir and the cheesy music but he loves her with a love that's different from a lot of arranged marriages in that time frame not just a a legal contract but something more like the love that God first loved us with so that we can return his covenant love the love he wants us to have too because that's his love for Israel, his love for the church, his love for you and I.